Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you all. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. And today we resume our consideration of this short epistle, largely neglected in the Church of Jesus Christ, at least today. The subject matter is, in some cases, rather hard for a 21st century person to swallow, even those who claim to be followers of Christ. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at the second chapter, and the second chapter is a treatment of the problem of false teachers in the church. It's very clear that these false teachers were already practicing their heresy in the first century church. Otherwise, we would not have this book. It's equally true that any place in history we might plop down in, we would find that the church has been plagued by false teachers. In the first three verses, we saw a profile of these false teachers. Then there's a brief hiatus, and now we're back in the last 12 or so verses of the second chapter. We're going to get a full portrait of false teachers. But before we go there, let me note that we're going to hang this message on one half of one verse, the 19th verse. The second part of the 19th verse of 2 Peter 2 and the New, Amer- a New American Bible reads as follows. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The New International Version puts it this way. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Do you ever feel like a slave to something other than Jesus Christ because that something or that some person has mastered you? Try as you might. Are you unable to dislodge yourself from the dominance of that something or that person? When I was a boy, one of my favorite TV shows was Dobie Gillis. Now there's about 14 of us present who know anything about Dobie Gillis. But my favorite character on Dobie Gillis was Maynard G. Krebs. Anybody remember Maynard G. Krebs? He was a beatnik, the forerunner of hippies probably. And every time he would say the word work, then he would shriek it. Or someone around him would say the word, he would shriek the word out. Work was a four-letter word to him for sure. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He could not control himself. He was under the spell of the idea of having to work. It was abhorrent to him. He did not want to be in its grasp. Also, a movie that came out in my boyhood was Dr. Strangelove, or How to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, talking about the A-bomb, of course, hydrogen bomb. And the main character, Peter Sellers, played Dr. Strangelove, He was a weird person, to say the least, and he was a person who was subject 
to not having control over his hand. His right hand was gloved, if you remember it, and at the most inopportune moment, all of a sudden, that hand would just reach up and grab him and begin to choke him. He'd take his other hand and wrestle it off. He was under compulsion. He was compelled, at least his arm was, to do what it wanted to do, even though it was not what his brain wanted his hand to do. Some of you, fast-forwarding several decades, are fans of Monk. Monk the detective. Adrian Monk, I believe, is his full name. And he suffers from OCD. Now, I'm not making fun of anybody who has that kind of condition. It's a real condition. But there are things that he just can't help himself but do. When we think about the Christian life, what we know is that there's one master by God's design. He brooks no rival. He will not allow anyone to replace him in the life of those who know him and follow him. Bob Dylan recently commented that the over 40 albums which he has produced throughout his illustrious career, the one that he loves the most is entitled Shot of Love. I had never heard of that. I, I'm a fan of Dylan, not an advocate of him as some people are, but I, I like his music, I like his lyrics, I like his sound. And Shot of Love was the third in a trilogy of albums which he wrote and performed on the heels of his making some kind of commitment, supposedly, to Jesus Christ. The second was Saved. Of the three, that is far and away, I think, the best one in terms of the message. The first one was a slow train coming. Any of you remember a slow train coming? And in that album is the song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. I'm tempted to fall into singing that song. <laughs> but I'll spare you that. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite wearing a long string of pearls. And then if I can get this quickly enough, here's one I really am convicted by. I think it's in here. Yeah, here it is. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The false teachers in question were men who served the devil. His imprint is all over their behavior, all over their message. We who know Jesus Christ must understand who the false teachers of our day are. Beware of them and warn others who may not be as trained in the gospel as we are. Young people, young in the faith, not young chronologically necessary, but people young in the faith and enable them to make a distinction between that which is of the Lord 
and that which is of the devil. And this passage of scripture will help us in that regard. We're going to look at those things which had mastered these false teachers. There are seven that I see in these verses. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, beginning with verse 10, the middle of the verse. And this tells us that the false teachers were mastered by their desires. Look at the way Peter describes them, daring. Let me stop here just a moment. The word daring, sometimes it can be used positively. Isn't it used positively by ourselves? Sometimes we think about people who are very courageous and they dare to do that which is dangerous in the service of others. We have a couple from our church who left Thursday, the Morgans, Dr. Eric Morgan, Carla Morgan. They're now in Erbil, Iraq, which was bombed day before yesterday air raid by the Syrian Air Force, attacking. They're there. They're intrepid. They're daring. They're bold for the Lord. But that does not carry weight with regard to these teachers. They were bold, all right. They were audacious. When they walked into the room, they took command of it. Their egos were so great that they literally swallowed up the people that were in the room. These were Attractive people, powerful people, persuasive people. Albert Speer, in his memoir regarding what it was like to be in the inner circle of Adolf Hitler in the reign of the Third Reich, said you could not even eat a cherry in his presence without being swallowed up by him. I happen to believe that man was demonized, and probably you would agree also. He was this kind of daring he was also self-willed. And this is another aspect of the idea that these false teachers are mastered by their own desires. The word self-willed, obviously, is a compound word in English, and that reflects that it was and remains a compound word in the language of the New Testament. The first half is actually the word self. The second half is the word from which our English words are found, for instance, hedonism, hedonistic, just a life of all-out pleasure. And so the person who is described here and these people were people who were truly looking only and fully for self-gratification. In a way, this characteristic is the umbrella under which the other six traits fall. It is the overarching mentality of false teachers. It was true in Peter's day, and it's also true in our day. Look what is characteristic of them beyond their being daring, self-willed, boisterous, obnoxious, controlling. The last part of verse 10 goes on to say, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. This last little phrase, revile angelic majesties, is a bit mysterious. Scholars have debated what it means over the century, centuries. But if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, just a moment, remembering that the same human author is responsible for 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we get insight many times in understanding complicated ideas by scanning the material 
of a particular writer's other writings, and we get insights that help us to understand. Such is the case regarding this matter of reviling angelic majesties. In verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, fix your eyes on the word glories. The glories to follow. To follow what? The sufferings of Christ. Were there glories which followed the passion of Christ? Of course. He looked like he had been overcome by Satan and by death when he was crucified on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died like a common criminal. He was brutalized. He was rejected of men. But he was not finished. Three days he lay in the tomb. And on the third day he was raised from the dead. And even in the raising of the dead of Jesus, we know that the writer of Matthew tells us that many other tombs broke loose and people came back to life. That's pretty miraculous, isn't it? Would you say that's angelic majesties? I would say it's phenomenal. And then what occurred in the time between his resurrection and his ascension, about a seven-week period, marvelous. And then Pentecost came, and then the church was born, and then the gospel spread all over the world. And to this day, almost 2,000 years later, the gospel of Christ is still making an impact. In this room today, Jesus is being lifted up. He is making an impact. He will continue to do that until he comes again. These false teachers revile, that means cast aspersions upon. It means to blaspheme. It means to slander. They slander the glories of Christ after he was raised from the dead, not to mention what occurred before. They slander his person that he is God become man, man who is perfect because God indwells him completely and totally in all times. But they revile him. Now they need to take a lesson, and we do too, from the next verse. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power that would be greater in might and power than these false teachers do not bring a reviling the participle of the word revile, it's the same idea, a slanderous judgment against them, the antecedent of them would be these false teachers before the Lord. Now that seems interesting. You would think for, that they would really go against these angels, these holy angels would stand up for the Lord and really revile these false teachers. But they've learned something that is hard for us to learn. And as we need to leave vengeance where it belongs. The Bible says in more than one place, God speaking, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's timing is always perfect. And how frequently do we see in the Bible people of God jumping the gun and getting ahead of the Lord. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten ahead of the Lord? 
and it was just a total disaster. It does happen. But they understood that it's important we wait on God. We can learn this lesson. When the seraphim, who are not described exactly as angels, they were heavenly beings, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, do you remember in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah went to the temple? And he saw God high and lifted up. The train of God filled the temple. And then he heard these seraphs singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the scripture says they had six wings. Can you imagine? With two wings they covered their face. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two wings they flew. But I believe in the covering of their faces... They were saying, look, I'm not going to look on God. I'm not going to talk when I need to be quiet. I'm going to listen and hear what God has to say. Here's a lesson for us. The false teachers were always chattering. They were always talking. There was never a quiet moment with them. They just chatter, chatter, chatter. It reminds me of the devil too. The Bible says about him in the book of Revelation 12, 10, that he accuses the brothers and sisters in Christ. How frequently? Day and night. Chatter, chatter. And to whom is he accusing us? To none other than God the Father himself. When we sin, this is what he does. But thank God we have a Lord Jesus Christ who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's our high priest and he never quits interceding for us. He interposes himself in his work on our behalf. The Bible says that we're not to be quick with our mouths and hasty in our hearts to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and we are on earth, so we're to let our words be few. Angels understand this, and so we are wise if we understand it. False teachers do not understand that. Verse 12 said about these false teachers who are daring, who are self-willed, all about pleasure, and self-gratification. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. He's talking about animals that are animals of prey. Traps are set for them. He's comparing the trapping of these animals of prey who preyed upon livestock. We remember David as he kept watch over the flocks of his father Jesse as a shepherd boy. He protected the sheep from attacks from bears and from lions and traps would be set by people in biblical days to do just that. That's what's awaiting these false teachers. They go on thinking they'll never be caught. They work feverishly. Have you ever wondered why the devil continues to do his work? Well, we know it's his nature. He's a liar, and he has been from the beginning. He's a murderer. He has been from the beginning. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Why didn't he just throw in the towel? Why didn't he just wave the white flag? Because I believe Satan figures he's going to be able to outwit God in the end. 
He's going to delay, postpone the second coming of Christ as long as he can. But a date has been set, and Christ is going to come again, and he will discover what that is Satan, that along with all these false teachers and those people who are opposed to Christ, they are going to suffer wrong as the wages of doing the wrong that they have done. Here's the second trait. It's the trait that they love to party. Now, the word party is not here, but I think you'll agree when I explain this a little bit. In verse 13, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, most of us, when we go to a party, it's usually after hours unless you're over 70 like I am. <laughs> so, I mean, parties are for the night, right? And that's not altogether bad. We work during the day and we play at night. But this kind of reveling, this word is a word that is a raucous word. It's like Mardi Gras in New Orleans word. Have you ever been to the Mardi Gras in New Orleans or maybe other places? It's lewd. It's really, really evil in many ways. And what these folks were doing, these false teachers, they didn't wait until the sun went down. And it's instructive to us as just how counter-cultural they were. And I'm not talking about counter to the Christian church. That was obvious. But also to Roman society. Because the Romans, as pagan as they could be, and the things which they condoned, they did a lot of that kind of wild living that was in-your-face God kind of living. But they said it's improper to do these things after it gets daylight, but not so. And these people, the word translated daytime could be translated, listen carefully, for a day. Some people say it means day after day. But how could someone interpret this simply with the phrase for a day? Here's how. There was a prevailing philosophy among other philosophies in New Testament times, and it was called the Epicurean way. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. This was their mentality. They were existentialists. They lived for the moment. They didn't think ahead. Now, we know Jesus says, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Its own. We want to live in the moment so that we don't miss the opportunities which God gives us to represent Him, for sure, and to trust Him. We don't want to waste our lives. But they were wasted in the middle of the day. The Scripture goes on to say they are stains and blemishes. These words are words of disfigurement and disability. Those two are stains, disfigured, hard to look at, blemishes, defects that kept them from accomplishing their purpose as human beings. Reveling in their deceptions. Here's yet another trait. Deceptions. They're deceivers. We don't have to go any further than that. We've already talked about how they are their father the devil. They're liars. As they carouse with you. Here's the fourth thing that's true of them. That they have eyes, verse 14 says, full of adultery, and that never cease from sin. 
Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the soul. Isn't it true? Being able to see is incredibly important for anyone. And our spiritual eyes are equally, if not more, important because we see truth with our spiritual eyes. The words translated having eyes full of adultery, this is literally what it says, translated word for word. Having eyes full of an adulteress. Every woman, not every woman, but most women, especially those that are attractive to a false teacher, every person that's female that this false teacher sees, he sizes her up and treats her like a sex object, not like a person who's a person in her own right. And so this is the characteristic also of these people. We see this so often with regard to false teachers, do we not? He goes on to say in verse 14, enticing unstable souls. Paul talks about how false teachers worm their way into the homes of widows who are in a place of vulnerability and they sweet talk them into a bed. Here's the fifth thing of false teachers. They have a heart trained for greed. That's what he says in the last part of 14, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. This word translated trained is used in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, where Paul says, discipline yourself to be godly. It's the same word, depending on the translator and the translation, it's the same idea. Become an expert in godliness is what God calls us to do. These people were experts in corruption. That was their MO. And they were expert in greed. Next summer, God willing, we're going to have a Summer Olympic. It's going to be in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. And there are going to be people who are going to win medals. Anybody who makes it to the Olympics as a participant is something else. You know what I mean? We may have some aspiring Olympian here this morning. We have one young man I know who went off to university last year. He's a sophomore, I guess, this year. I'm not sure. I'm losing track. Are you losing track of what year it is sometimes <laughs> because of COVID? It's like we just lost track, isn't it? Well, he is aspiring to the Olympics, and he has that capacity. I won't name him, but he was in the top 10 in the United States in the 400 meters. I'm talking about all age groups two years ago. So he has that possibility. Not many of us do have that kind of ability and discipline. You have to discipline yourself. But these people trained themselves in this. It was as if they were standing on the platform receiving a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal for greed, and it was around their necks. This word greed is often translated by the word covetous. It reminds us of the commandment which says, you shall not covet. What does that mean? When I covet something, I want it, whether it's a thing or a position or a person. Isn't that true? And it's something that we're all tempted to do, and probably the majority of us, if not the vast majority, have been covetous of people who have more than we, or have a better mate than we do, or have a better position in the public eye than we do. 
This is what was true of these people. Hearts trained. They had worked hard at becoming such people. And then he gives an illustration. Look at verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a dumb donkey. You know the story? The donkey spoke to him. The donkey saw an angel blocking the way and actually pushed, read about it in Numbers 22, pushed Balaam against a stone wall and he was crushing his leg. And man, he just beat the daylights out of that donkey. And the donkey all of a sudden spoke to him and told him what was going on. And he restrained, the scripture says, the madness of the prophet. Now here's what's true of false teachers. Listen carefully. Here's how you can spot a false teacher. A false teacher leads God's people astray for his own personal benefit financially. That's typical of false teachers. All these are traits of this kind of teacher, these false teachers. He goes on to say in verse 17, these are springs without water. They promise something, but it's a mirage. And mist driven by a storm. They're gone. They promise, they don't deliver. And look at their destiny. The black darkness has been reserved. The word black and darkness is sort of a redundancy because the word black means dark. It's dark darkness. And the idea of dark reflected in the word translated black here is the idea of horrifying. It was a horrifying darkness that's been reserved. We saw last week it's Tartarus, the lowest level of hell, which is reserved for these false teachers. And ultimately, Satan himself, during the millennium, he's going to be locked up. Wouldn't that be a great place to spend a thousand years? With Satan and the beast, that would be the Antichrist and the false prophet. That's not very inviting company, is it? That's where people are going to be who are on the leash of Satan. And then here is another characteristic. Their words are empty. For speaking out arrogant words, and the word arrogant means swollen words. It was used to describe the sea when it was in an uproar and the waves would swell. And their words are big and they're so impressive, but they're empty. And they use these empty words. The word vanity is reminiscent of what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon writes over and over again, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, empty, empty, everything is empty. These are their words. They sound so right on to the untrained ear. How do we train our ear, by the way? I should have said this earlier when I was talking about how we're to take a lesson from the book of the angels who reserve and they listen. We need to learn to listen to the Lord. How do we hear the voice of the Lord? We read the Bible. It's God's word. When the, we read the scripture, the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. And if you take Exodus 9:16, put it alongside Romans 9:16, you clearly see that this has to do with God's voice speaking to us, the scripture. This is how we discern truth from error. 
And it's not just for people who are trained how to teach the Bible. To the contrary, we have the Holy Spirit if we know Him. And He is the one who explains the truth of Scripture. I'm not knocking education. I have benefited a lot from my own personal education. But look, if I never went to a Bible college or I never went to seminary, it would not mean I could not understand the Scripture. Why? Because I'm a child of God and the Holy Spirit lives in me. And He will teach me just as surely as He will teach the most learned scholar of the Bible in the whole world. Because the truth is the truth is the truth. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So don't let anybody fool you into thinking that you don't have what it takes to read the Bible. If you know Jesus, if you don't know Christ and the Bible is like a closed book to you and you read it and it's just like reading another language, you probably don't know the Lord. Because one of the sure signs of one's knowing Christ is that you understand the plain teaching of the Bible. But we need to understand these false teachers, their words are vain. They entice, and the words, word entice tips us off that Peter was really the human author because it's a word that is a fishing word. When you go fishing, what do you do? You lure the fish to your hook. And this word entice means luring people. That's what the word conveys. Scripture goes on to say, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. False teachers really emphasize freedom. And so does the Bible. Hold your place here. Go back to 1 Peter Look at verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 2. This is real freedom. This is the freedom for which we have been called by Christ. To be free, and look at what we're to be free of. Look at verse 16 of 1 Peter 2. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. That's what these false teachers did. But use it as bond slaves of God. Here's what we're free from when we come to Christ. It's awesome. From the guilt, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you grateful for that? When you stand before Christ, you cannot stand in your own merit. You can't hope that the good things you've done will outweigh the bad. Because if you've committed one sin, the Bible says in James 2.10, you're, you're guilty of having broken all the laws of God. But we stand before the Lord and we stand in the righteousness of Christ, we have been set free from the guilt of sin and also the power of sin. Whereas prior to my coming to Christ, all I could do was sin because I was self-motivated. After coming to Jesus, I trust Him to guide me. And He gives me the power to do what He would have me to do. Many people think that you've got to keep all the law to be saved. That was the Old Testament system, practically speaking. But nobody can keep all of them, right? Can you imagine the burden that would be on a person if that person believed, I've got to keep every piece of the Scripture every day? It's not to invite us to sin. 
That's not the point. But look, we can exhale, can't we? Why? Because of the work of Christ on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That's what the Bible said. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God for that. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now look at verse 20 and we're almost through. Verses 20 through 22 talk about how, and this is the coup de grace, they have rejected the gospel of Jesus. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Remember what we've learned already about the false teachers. They didn't come from another country. They didn't come from another planet or another universe. Neither do they do now. They come from the church. They are embedded in the church. Jesus talks about this in the book of Matthew chapter 13. And they have the appearance of being godly, but they have no godliness because God does not live in them. They're not sold out to the Lord. And so he goes on to say in verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now here's the last verse, and it helps us to understand the fate of these so-called teachers. They're false teachers. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Nice picture, huh? And a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Have you ever washed up a pig? Probably not. But you may have seen people doing it. You wash the pig up, and by the way, it's a proven fact, pigs are smarter than dogs. I'm sorry, dog lovers. I'm a dog lover too. But pigs as a whole are smarter than dogs. But what do they do? They do what comes naturally. It's the nature of a dog to return to its vomit. It's the nature of a sow, not just the female, the boar too, pigs, to return to the mud. That's their nature. So why would this be an explanation? The true proverb, it's very clear. These false teachers return to their nature. They never were born again. They came across as so smoothly, and they still do. And in our ignorance, because we don't read the Bible, we buy what they say, and we are hooked. We're entangled in their teaching. Turn your Bible, one book to the back, and we're going to look at two verses, a final comment, and we'll be through and prepare to observe the Lord's Supper. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Among those who would qualify as Antichrist, notice the plural, this is not the Antichrist with a capital A, would be false teachers. Look at what he goes on to say about all those who are opposed to Christ, teachers. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That tells the story, doesn't it? That these false teachers are not of us. 
God wants us to put Him, Jesus Christ, in the place that He earned and deserves in each of our lives. We're to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That means we submit ourselves to Him. Let's pray. If you've never submitted yourself to Christ, don't you think this would be a good day to do it? To say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be ruled by you because everything else I've given myself over to, whether it's a person or a substance or a philosophy or things, Lord, everything I've given myself over to has led to disaster in my life, dissatisfaction. And so, Lord, I want to give my heart to you today fully, fully. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.